Hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, author and scholar Jesse Thistle on his memoir, From the Ashes, that's coming up on Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Dan McPeak. Happy Saturday. Yes, it is Saturday as I record this. I have been busy the last three days working on the set of a Hallmark Christmas movie Christmas and summer you gotta love it and they're long days they're 15 hour days you know get to set it 5 30 get home by like you know 9 9 30 10 and pretty much pass out so I didn't really get a chance to get up the show in the time that I wanted Although I should probably start pre-recording these intros and outros. It might make my life easier. But anyway, that is the reason that I you didn't get a show uh, on Thursday. But you can look for the movie this Christmas on the Hallmark Channel. The interview today is decidedly not Christmas. It features my interview with Jesse Thistle. And who is Jesse Thistle? Well, he is a Métis Cree PhD candidate in the history program at York University, where he also teaches as an assistant professor and working on theories of intergenerational and historic trauma of the Métis people. This work involves reflections of his own previous struggles with addiction and homelessness. Uh, He has been homeless both in Toronto and Vancouver uh, and for many years struggled with addiction and was in and out of jail but last year he was asked to write his memoir so he did and the result was from the ashes my story of being Métis homeless and finding my way and it was named because of that he was named as Kobo's 2020 Canadian nonfiction emerging writer prize as well he was also named one of the most 50 influential torontonians of 2019 and is a member of the artist ambassador program gore downey and chani wenjack fund in his role as an academic he is he is also authored or co-authored other books including the puzzle of the morissette archon clan a history of the metis historic and intergenerational trauma the National Definition of Indigenous homeless in, Homelessness in Canada. Geography of Blood, Uncovering the Hidden Histories of Métis People in Canada. We Are Children of the River, Toronto's Long Lost Métis History. But what makes this even more remarkable is that Jesse was functionally illiterate well into his 20s. In our interview, we talk about homelessness, addiction, trauma, what causes people to become homeless, the foster care system and its effects on Indigenous people, mental health, and where the country is in terms of 
reconciliation and that word itself and, and what it means and and all its connotations. And Jesse is very clear that he is not telling an indigenous story or a Métis story, but he is telling his story, and he can only speak to his experiences. But, as I mentioned, this interview does deal with themes of addiction, mental health, trauma, homelessness, uh, even a little bit of abuse. So, listeners, take heed on that. But, without further ado, here is my conversation with Jesse Dissel. How are you, how are you holding up in, uh, in quarantine? Yeah, quarantine's been pretty intense. I'm okay. I'm okay, though, you know, just chilling, mossing out, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, one thing that I was doing in quarantine was, uh, you know, re- reading uh, From the Ashes. Um, I, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful memoir, I must say. Um, you know, writing about yourself is never the easiest thing why was now the, the, the right time in, in your life to, to tell your story? It wasn't. It wasn't the right time. It's like trying to prepare to have a kid. You just do it. You can't overthink it. I was asked to write the book too. And I was like, here's this golden opportunity to share my life. And why not take it? It's a lot of work. And yeah, you put yourself out there and you're open to criticism. But like, what the hell, you know? So there was there wasn't a right time. You know, obviously there are, you know are some difficult and, and and painful memories for for you to relive. How how did you go about you know wading through your you know your your early life and sort of what specifically to to include, especially amongst the more difficult times? Yeah, it's uh, I don't know. I work with the editor. And uh, her name's Lori Grassi at Simon and Schuster, and she had a collection of what's called my fourth steps for AA. That's how I got sober. And a lot of the stories are just me recounting things that didn't make sense in my life that were driving my resentments from my addictions. And so, when I presented them to her, she's like, "Okay, we can't put in twelve years of street life because that would be like a volume of books." So we need to have some of your early life, your life growing up, and then your life after uh, you're on the streets. And so she helped me color in all those little pieces along the way. And there's a lot of stuff I couldn't share. You know, this is actually the PG version of what happened to me, right? I kept back the most uh, traumatizing things. I know that some people, when they read it, they get triggered and they're shocked by it. Well, imagine living it. And imagine the stuff that I shared isn't even the worst of it. And so, you know, I always uh, countenance when people ask uh, that question, I say, you know, well, you're only seeing a, a small tip of that life, right? One thing that I found interesting is, you know, every so often you, you include these poems and, and, and interludes. How, how did, why did you decide to do that? How do you think that en- helps enhance telling your story? Well, because the, the story is actually done in a very, it's called literary realism. So it's like you're watching a movie. I'm showing you a chronology of events. And I submerge you in the writing of whatever is actually happening. And I'm, I'm not really getting too much into reflexivity or how I feel or how other people feel. Because I couldn't really know that, you know. Yeah. I can remember. And so I write down what I remember. And so if you look at the, the poems, they're very emotive and reflexive of the times that I'm actually talking about. And if I was to try and weave that into the actual narrative of each of the chapters, I would lose that element of realism. So I put them in interspersed in between uh, the chapters that they're actually about. And so you get a, a look into my heart with the poems and you get a look into what's actually happening through the narrative and I didn't confuse the two because 
I'm just not skilled of a write that of a writer yet to do that. You know, I just basically learned how to read 12, 10 years ago. And so this is what came out of me. Yeah. Well, that, you know, I think that makes this book, you know, even more remarkable achievement because you, you, you talk about, you know, how you were illiterate for, for, you know, a, a, a lot of your early life. And, you know, now, now here you are with a, you know, with a PhD and in, in, in teaching. Um, how, do you reflect back on the fact it's just like, you know, when I was in school, I, I couldn't read or write and now, and now here I am and I've, I've written a full memoir. Yeah, I do re- reflect on it all the time. Uh, I guess I was r- really, and I would say I could read a little bit. I was functionally illiterate. So I could read like a Toronto Sun article with difficulty, but there's no way I could read like a Globe and Mail. or It just was too complex for me. And so, yeah, I look back at my life and I'm like, wow, man, you know, you've read, you've written in y- your book and liter- literacy literally saved your life and changed your path in life. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. You know, that's a beautiful thing, not, you know, to use education in that way to transform yourself. So I'm just uh, thankful to God or Allah or Buddha or whatever the heck you want to call it and for helping me learn to read and write properly. You know, a, a big part of at least the, the first part of this book is about family and the complex relationship you have with your brothers and, and your grandparents and, and, and your parents. And, you know, now, now that you have a wife yourself and, and writing this, have you, have you thought about what the concept of, of, of family is and, and what it means to you and, and how I think it's the meaning of family is, is changing in our society? Yeah, and I've actually studied this in my comprehensive exams, like the invention of the modern nuclear family is something that comes out of the Industrial Revolution. And so before that, people used to live in larger extended kin networks. And so I know the evolution of the family from an academic point of view. And now from a personal point of view, I can see, you know, family is about my cat and my wife and our little home in Hamilton. And like all that scholarship doesn't mean jack shit compared to the love that's in this house that keeps me safe. And for me, it's about being uh, protective, protecting my home, providing for my wife and her same. And we just fiercely work together and try to build something new out of nothing, you know, try to turn a dollar out of 15 cents. And that's what me and Lucy have been doing the whole time. And so that's what family is to me. You know, and I, I actually think it's it's very sweet. You know, it's it, it is a love story between you and Lucy because you 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 know you two first first met as um as 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 teenagers. Um, what, Ten years old when we first met. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. What did it mean when when she came back into your life, and and when did you know that she was going to be the one that that you would marry? Uh uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, so when I was young, she didn't uh, really, I would, didn't make a big impression on her, right? I was a nerdy kid and she was hung out with the like popular kids. And so uh, just like when I met her, it made such an imprint on me. And then she went off to a different high school and had a whole new other life. So when she came back in, I thought she'd remember me like I remembered her and she didn't at all really she knew i'd gone to the same school as her and whatever and so i don't know she just there was something about her in the way that she was kind to me and trusted me back when i was you know in rehab when the world wasn't a very kind or nice place to me you know and everything was really really hard and she was just kind when i needed her my grandmother had just passed and i remember when my my grandmother had died that my grandfather said that like he loved her because she was kind and like I saw that in Lucy and that like I just knew that she was the one because of that and she's got a good heart I I heard somebody say once in an interview years ago that you need to be vulnerable to fall in love and you know with with Lucy and even some of the other people that you mentioned like like Karen and, and Samantha they, they all seem to come into your life at specific points um, do you, do you think that there, there is a certain sense of vulnerability associated with love? 
Yeah, I th- there's this old Russian saying that I heard, I hope you have your heart broken a thousand times, but I hope that you have the courage to love a thousand and one times, right? Yeah. And so it does. That's true courage. That's real courage. You're opening yourself up. You're, you're putting down your walls and you're letting someone in. And that's where love grows, right? In that vulnerability. And you give yourself and you have to trust the other person that they're going to, you know, do something with that in a positive way. And yeah, she's the great gardener of my heart or my soul. You know, I opened up to her and she really transformed me into a new person. And I did that with her as well. You know, I really valued the love that she gave me and I could saw see that she was herself being courageous and you know, like who falls in love with a ex-con just coming out of jail with 10 years of, uh, you know, trouble with the law and addictions. That's not a very smart choice, right? So she took a, be- a big chance on me too, right? So, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I think <clears throat> as, as kids, we, we try so hard to not become our parents. And yet, in some ways, we always become them. When did you realize that you were you were becoming your, your father and and how did you ultimately do you think pull away from that when i really realized that is when i was in rehab when i was in rehab and i just they get really deep in your head eh and they start to like really deconstruct what you, what your social dna is and they're saying like you know i don't know if you realize it jesse but you became your father to live that role, his role for your grandparents because they lost their kid. They lost their firstborn son. And he was an addict. He was a homeless person. He had all these same issues that I had. So I lived that in a way to give them back their son, my father. And also beyond that, I lived that similar life because unconsciously, I was searching for him in all the places that he would have been, you know, on the edges and periphery of society with outlaws, with murderers, with thieves, with addicts. All these places are places where he would have been, you know, it's just like a generation later. And so it was in rehab that I really came to understand that and break down the mechanics of my own psychology. You know, and you you talk about when you were younger and, you know, nine, 10, 11, and even younger, you, 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 you were, you had an interesting relationship with, with your, your, your indigenous identity. Um, when, when did that sort of full reconciliation, do you think, come for you? I don't think it ever has. And I don't think it ever will. Because even going back and trying to be part of the indigenous community, I'm ostracized, I'm not understood. I'm still an outsider and I always will be. I always will be. I'll never do it properly because I just don't know what it is to be indigenous. But that doesn't mean I don't have the right to try. Right. To try to make mistakes, to try to reconnect. And so I've been criticized actually openly recently about the way that I wrote my book and it's not indigenous or enough or it's not this enough. I just wrote my life, man. I don't care how other people interpret it i'm always going to make mistakes trying to recapture my indigeneity and that is okay you know i'll never get reconciliation that's why i put that at the end of the book you know and play with that term when it comes to you know i cultural identity and i guess you know being part of of a certain group there's that but how much of who we are is, is also individual and specific to us as well as being perhaps part of a, a larger aspect of society. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't define me. I'm not uh, indigenous dash Jesse. I'm Jesse Thistle. And that's just a small part of who I am. You know, it's an important yeah. part. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a key for me to get better. But that doesn't define me and I will evolve into different roles, way more important like fatherhood, being a good husband, house owner, you know, grandfather, all those good things, right? And so, you know, it's not about wearing feathers and buckskins all the time for me, I'll tell you. It's about living my life and being honest. Yeah. 
you've um you've been homeless in two of Canada's largest cities um and you know I think especially with covid now we're we're reexamining how we treat the homeless and, and and how we approach that what are what are some misconceptions you you think that society at large has about homeless people I think society at large thinks it's a moral choice or there's like a failing with their will or something when really there's systematic uh, exclusions that happen throughout one's life, like poverty, like race, like lack of access to education, trauma, all these things inform uh, addiction, homelessness, uh, marginality, criminality. Uh, rates of recidivism. And so really we have to start looking at the larger structures of society that are producing homelessness and not look at individual choices, quote unquote, and say it's their fault. Because really that, that that's called victim blaming, right? Yeah. The, the homeless crisis in our country really is a product of the way that we've uh, commodified housing. Uh, so it's a problem of greed. Because in the 80s, when we built co-op housing and we didn't build all these condominiums, there were places for people to be. It's since then that we're not building co-op. We're not taking care of the less privileged, that they become homeless over time. And so in reality, we need to switch the lens of looking at homelessness and look back at society and the way that we're commodifying property and look at homes like they're dwellings of habitation again instead of like their places to park our money to make, you know, $100,000 after we flip the home. Do you, do you think the, the COVID pandemic and, and how we're dealing with it will spur us to, to do more for the homeless community in this country? Mm, I hope, I hope, I hope that we can keep some of these transition hotels that help people socially distance, but we live in an era where people have memories of fruit flies, you know, yeah. when, once this passes and everything is good again, I don't know if these uh, things will stick and, you know, safe supply is another big thing that we need to uh, allocate to people that are suffering with addictions that are homeless and they're doing that in some cities, but I don't know if that will be a political issue after. So yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm also naive. You, you know, you, you mentioned a lot of the systemic issues and you, you, know, you, you spent a little bit of time um, in, in, in the foster system. How do you think the, the foster system uh, affects youth and, and young people and maybe specific to you experience, how, how, how does it treat uh, the indigenous youth in, in this country? That's a really big question. Um, I think that it takes people who are indigenous out of their kinship structures and places them elsewhere. And so that kind of alienation, I believe, is a kind of homelessness in itself. I've talked to people that have gone through the system and they say that that's where their homelessness really started. Back when they were four, when they were taken by CAS. The houselessness that they endure later when they're 18 or 19 and age out of the system is really a product of that earlier cultural dislocation from kinship structures and language and, and all those things. And so I see that without like a transition into housing out of uh, systems like CAS as like a mechanism of homelessness, it, it's just, just, you're pushing young people into homelessness with no supports. You know, they already don't have very strong kinship structure supports and then their institutional supports are gone. It's like you're pulling the rug right out from underneath them and they're totally exposed and there is really no place for them to be other than, you know, homeless. And so it's a big problem that they're trying to work on. And uh, I know that there's some work at the homeless hub around this uh, different uh, ho homeless or organizations across the country are grappling with this problem because there's a direct link between uh, homelessness and child services. You know, and the, the other, you know, system of support uh, 
Vancouver has done a lot of great experimental work in, in terms of, of, of drug policy, but do, how, do we, how do you think we need to reform that? Do we need to go the way of Portugal where they've sort of legalized all drugs and it's, and it's seen a, a drop in, in addiction? Um, do you think you can speak to that at all as, as, as someone who's yeah. experienced that? Yeah, there's a lot of people. I'm a Trudeau scholar. I was one. And I went to a drug conference and there was a lot of like high level politicians, police officers who are all advocating for that. They say we need to decriminalize uh, drugs. And so I would take it a step further. I'd say we need to like make them legal and then tax them and then use that tax dollars to rehabilitate people who have drug issues instead of treating them as like, you know, because they break the law because they have addiction as a punitive issue. They need to reschedule that and make it into a health issue. And so that money that they get from legalized drugs, they could put into way more rehabilitation centers and get people off drugs. And what that'll do is that it'll see rates of overdoses as well as addictions drop and you will kill organized crime over because that's where a lot of these drugs come from and they get their profits because it's illegal. And so if the government takes that over and standardizes it, you're getting rid of prohibition, right? Mm -hmm. We all know what prohibition did in the States and from the Volstead Act that, that created the American mob. Well, to reverse that, you legalize the drugs and tax them and strictly regulate them, you know, like we're doing with marijuana, you know? You you mentioned reconciliation and you you do uh, end the book with with that term. Where are we in in terms of reconciliation as a country and and with our past and in how we've treated the the indigenous peoples? Do you think uh, we're far behind countries like Germany that have really looked at their history in like a naked lens, and you know that might have been because like the denazification of germany they were forced to do that and so when you go there you out in front of like houses where holocaust survivors were taken they have little plaques you know to recognize each one of the stolen jewish people well we need to do that here in canada we need to mark and remember these places with public history we need to start giving land back, you know, and not just talking about, oh, reconciliation, let's hear your truth. What are you going to do? What's the compensation? How is that going to change people's actual lives? You know, the structures of their living. How are you going to improve what happened? That's through reparations and, and returning land. And so we're far, far away from that. South, South Africa, I know, is a little further ahead than we are. There have been some land back programs there are hostile takeovers of boer farms is what happened there by blacks and so we're not there because we just don't have the, the numbers to do that here in canada but un, until we start really you know fixing the issues with monetary support we're not even really in truth and reconciliation or whatever you call it you know you know well with, with trc and even with you know, with Idle No More that we saw a few years ago, it, it seems like there's a lot of similarities between that and, you know, BLM and the conversations that, that we're having now. Um, is, is, do you see any similarities and do you think there is room for, for Indigenous voices in, in, in what we're seeing right now? I don't know. I, have, I don't know enough about the issues to, to comment on it. I know that when I was in jail, you know, in places that I ended up in on the streets, there were black people more than there were white people, you know, especially in jail. And there were more indigenous people, especially in jail. And so I wrote about that. And so through my lived experience and my experience with the police, like on page 270, they break my wrist and crack my throat. That's police brutality I'm talking about in there, right? I could have very easily been killed there. And so... Yeah, there are parallel conversations, but we also have to remember the drivers behind our different racisms are different, right? The legislation, like the Indian Act, and the way that we've treated black people historically, two totally different kind of things, but they're feeding the same, I guess you would say, white supremacist agenda, 
Uh, so, yeah, I don't know enough about to comment on it, but I just give you my lived experience. Well, you know, in, it's interesting that you, you, you know, you talk about police brutality because that's a big thing that's also happening. But your your brother um, was also uh, in, in, in the police force. So, he, you know, how, how would you describe your, your relationship with with the, the police and, and those in, in uniform today? Well, I know that police are. Policing is an institution, right? Right. And yeah. institutions are populated by people. And some people are good, some people are bad, right? And there's a culture in there that perpetuates or rewards bad behavior for some reason in policing. So my brother was one of the good police officers from what I've heard. My uncle was also a police officer. Mr. T in the book was also a police officer. There were police officers that when I was on the streets, they were the only people that cared when it was negative 30 out, they'd arrest me and send me to the bullpen where every other people would just walk right over me, including university students, including activists. So I have a real understanding of the realities of policing. They're at, they come to you at your worst. You're either, they're, they're your best friends because they're rescuing you from some violent act or they're your worst enemies because they're there at the worst moment of your life. And so imagine the stress of that job, yeah. right? And so I think it's unfair to label the whole institution as unfair or unjust. I think we need to change the population in the institution and the culture, yes. But like we can't just like, you know, start saying that it's a, we should just throw it out with, with, you know, that's, it's important to our society to have. And I know that's not going to make me very popular and people are probably going to hate me, but that's what I believe. You, you know, you've mentioned jail a couple of times and you talk about in the book, how for you at times jail was almost preferable to, to being anywhere else. Yeah. Psychologically, what, what does that do to you? Well, it's going to jail. I used to love it. I used to love going to jail. All my friends are in jail, right? I could get like free food and a place to stay and uh, I could work out. And so in a lot of ways, it was good. Uh, and psychologically, I don't know, when that becomes your best option in life, it just shows you the tragedy of the modern capitalist system, you know, because really... Uh, my homelessness was a product, like I was saying, of, of like greed and just they're not building the right amount of houses and whatever. And I'd made a couple of bad choices in my life and was in bad situations. So that messed me up for many years, you know, many years. I'm, I, even now, sometimes I like look nostalgically at going back to jail. I'm like, I wish I could just go to jail now and not do anything and just rest. Right. And like, you know, so for me, it's kind of weird. It's like what other people see as a punishment in society for me in many ways was a reward because especially when I almost lost my foot, there was no other place for me to be. And inside of jail, the best place for me to be was solitary confinement. I loved it there because I could, I could rest and nobody would bother me. Now, people who advocate for or who are abolitionists, they hate me because they don't want to hear the truth of what it's actually like to be a homeless person and that there are no other places for us to be that are safe other than jail. Right. And that's a reality. And until you build the proper housing and rehabilitation facilities, that will always be the answer for people that are desperate, like I was with my leg. And so that again complicates the reality of the situation on the ground where it's not black and right, white uh, or wrong and right. You know, life is a series of gray and that's, that's, I'm just showing you a couple of examples that detail that. I, I think for me, the, I guess the, the most shocking, if I can put it that way, memory um, was with the, the murder of, of that cab driver um, in, in, uh, yeah. in Toronto um, that uh, Mike and, and, and Stefan were involved in. When that happened, what was, was it, what was going through your mind? And was that the first time where you're like, okay, now I need to get out? 
Well, it was like I was involved in something that was far larger than me. And I knew that. And I'm like, if I don't get ahead of this and like do the right thing, then my life is ruined. And I stood up for justice when it mattered most, mattered most. My life was on the line, not only from like going to jail, but people actually hunting to try to kill me. That was like that for a couple of years after that. And so I stood up for justice and that's what it was like. And everybody hated me for many years because I was involved with it, but they didn't know the whole story because I didn't have a chance to tell my story because people are idiots and they, they jump to conclusions about your role in something just by association. Right. And so I I've, it's, it's still something that traumatizes me that I, when I think about like what could have happened if I didn't stand up, you know, you know, who knows they, who they could have come and tried to kill me because I knew too much. Who knows what would happen? And so I always look for that in, in cases of justice. Who really stands up? Because there are a lot of people that say, well, I would stand up in the moment. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Nobody would. And I, I've, I've seen it over and over and over again. The just man usually is the most uh, persecuted man. And that doesn't come from my wisdom. That comes from Aristotle. And so that's when it matters the most, right? That's when it matters the most. And I found out years later uh, that uh, the, the cab driver was actually Jagmeet Singh's uncle. Oh, really? And yeah, you look at uh, my Facebook page on, uh, and you'll see the moment when I told Jagmeet that I was the guy that called the police on his, the guys that killed his uncle. He thanked me and put a public uh, thank, thank, uh, thanking message on, on Twitter because he understands you know what that was about but like everybody else from that circle in time i was labeled a rat and hunted and so that's still very traumatizing for me do do you when that when you met jagmeet and that happened do you feel like that was your life coming full circle a little bit no no i don't i think that was just something that happened my i did what i did to save myself and to bring justice to because i heard that Baljinder Singh Ray had two kids and that's who really was um, in that moment I knew that that was the right thing so kind of ended for me you know then when I went and did what I did and so I'm no hero I'm just I just did what I had to do well you 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 mentioned uh, trauma and I'm curious you know especially when writing that do you do you think about maybe how trauma positively or, or, or negatively uh, affected certain memories? And, and did that make writing the book that much harder? For sure it did. For sure it did. I re-traumatized myself and I re-traumatize myself every time I talk about it. But I know I have to remember that I'm telling my story to help and educate other people that don't know about that life, Right. I've charted a pathway out of trauma and homelessness as well. And so it's been taken up by trauma experts like Gabor Mate, who uses it to, uh, gifts it to his friends who are psychologists. Um, I've get email, I got a couple emails today from judges that give the book out to convicts as they're being convicted because it charts a pathway out of that life and gives them hope. And so, yeah, that's the way I look at the trauma and I try to use that trauma for good. And I always have to remember that I'm doing it to help other people because if this was a vanity project or based in ego, which some of it is, it would have destroyed me a long time ago. I just wouldn't have been able to maintain. So that's what keeps me going. Is, is trauma something we ever truly get over or is it something that always no matter how faint or prominent will always be there. It's always there. I'm always, I have complex PTSD. And so every room I go into, I make sure that there, I have my eye on the exit. I scan people's bodies to see if they're carrying guns, you know, 
I usually have a good radar uh, to sort of people that are like doing uh, nefarious things that I don't want to be involved in. And so, yeah, it's always there. So I always think people are coming to kill me still. I always will. That'll be with me till the end, till I die. And the way that my trauma therapist has explained it to me is that like, I'm like a time traveler. My brain still thinks it's, you know, New Year's Eve, uh, 2000. And like, you know, or the day after all that shit happened. And then like people are hunting me. I still think that. I still think, you know, you never get over it. You never, never get over it. And so. You know, from at least from what I remember learning um, in school is that in, indigenous culture has a long storied history of, you know, of, of, of storytelling of, of, you know, pass, passing folklore down, down through the generations. What, what do you attribute that to? Where do you think that comes from? And, and why is it such a big part of, of your culture? Michael, I was raised in Brampton. I don't know much about that culture. I know about Tim Hortons and WWE wrestling and Maple Leafs and, you know, that's what I know about. That's not really part of my culture. I'm trying to get back and learn about it. And I, I'll spend the rest of my life trying to connect. Whether I'll ever be accepted and they'll share oral traditions with me, I don't know, but like, I can't speak to that. Um, but, but, you know, you, you, and you also sort of mentioned in the book here, my, my story of, of being Métis, is, is there, is there a certain cultural identity that, that comes with being Métis at all, do you think? Well, I think a lot of the historical factors in my book are the Métis experience. So my family lived on the road allowance in the beginning where I'm with my Kukum and Mosham. That's a Métis story. Um, the way that I was taken uh, by CAS and they called my white grandfather instead of my indigenous gr mother, that's a very indigenous story. That's how we're scooped. And so that experience is indigenous, not knowing who you are in a different place, denying your heritage because it's too painful to face. That is an indigenous identity for an urban displaced indigenous person. The whole book is like that. The effects of trauma because I was, went through CAS and the way that I reacted to it with addictions, that's an indigenous story. And if you read it that way, which other indigenous people, when they read it, they contact me and say, oh my God, this is the first time I've actually read my story and it's not performative. You're actually just talking about what it's to be indigenous. And they're thankful because a lot of writers now are just performing their indigeneity. They're not really talking from their true experiences. And I didn't want to do that. This is my one chance at telling my story. I wanted to tell it as honestly as I could. You know, on, on that note, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot more stories now from Indigenous writers like yourself. You know, there's filmmakers out there like, like Jeff Barnaby, a lot of musicians like, like Tanya Tagak. Where, where is Canada in, in, in terms of in, including Indigenous creatives and Indigenous storytellers in, in the larger culture? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Jesse Wente would know that. He's uh, the head of the Canada Council now. Uh, I just mind my business and they can do their thing. I just, yeah, that's all I know, really. Uh, I know that I got my book contract because of my story of addiction and homelessness and, and my rise in academia. It had a little bit to do with me being Indigenous, but I'm not... I wasn't raised in community and I don't have all those community connections and, right. you know. What, you know, when, when, when people read this and read your story, is there a message you would like, like them to take away and anything specific that, that you hope they learn or, or they understand? Uh, maybe just to have a little empathy, you know, when they see someone question that maybe they have a story behind them maybe they could be the next Trudeau or Vanier or governor general winner you know just because they're homeless and they can't read well and they've never had a shot at life doesn't mean that they can't turn into something great 
and hope that's all I wanted people to come away with was a, a greater sense of empathy, uh, you know, and not, not just for homeless indigenous people, but for all homeless people, people with addiction. So you, you, you had a lot of people give you great reviews here. People like Sheila Rogers and Amanda Linhout and Katrina Vermette and, 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 and Clara Hughes. Um, I don't know if you've, you've read any of the quotes, but out of, out of all the people that have, you know, and celebrities that have given you feedback was, what was there one that, you were really happy to receive or one that really stuck out for you? Yeah, I got one from Maria Campbell. She, she's probably the greatest indigenous writer that I've ever read. And she never blurbed it. She just read it and she called me crying. And she, that was all I needed to know that it was a good solid piece of literature that I did my job correctly. She's a Métis writer and, uh, a Kukum Mushum, uh, one of the matriarchs of our nation, Métis nation. And so if, if she gave me a good, uh, you know, a good couple tears, then I knew that I did my job right, you know. And then you have the lesser writers, like uh, uh, not saying that their writing is lesser than anybody, but they're not kind of on the same level as Maria. I'd say like Katerina Vermette and uh, Tracy Lindbergh and, Shri Dimaline, all these really, you know, Tanya Telaga, these are powerful indigenous women who've held me up. And so, yeah, but it's Maria's tears. That's what, get, that's how I knew it was a good book. And I did my job properly. You know, we're, we're, we're living in the era of, of biopics and, and, and true life stories or, or even documentaries. Has there been any discussion um, with anybody about maybe uh, adapting this for, for the screen, either as a, as a documentary or, or a feature film? It's option, like before the book was even written, actually. Uh, so we're now in discussions for a miniseries with American uh, producer and we're hoping it'll go because I don't want it to be Canadian because it, when it's Canadian it's just not the same <laughs> you know they have more freedom down there to make it a better production and so it's uh, in the works right now I can't say too much but we're very close to signing and uh, it's going to be good it's going to be good and we're we're looking at global indigenous talent to make the the, the, the miniseries or whatever you call it have have you thought about who you might like to play you? I uh, just not John Goodman, you know. <laughs> I I think I you know I'm I'm old, right? I'm 44, so anybody who I think is cool isn't cool anymore. So I can't really pick. I don't know. I don't know. Just not someone. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Who do you think I should should play me? Oh, that's a good. Well, I mean. The first person that came to mind just because, I mean, but he would maybe play like the adult you, like at the end, um, would be somebody like Adam Beach. Because um, I know you two are, are, are roughly the same age. Um, and, you know, he's in, and he's known in the States as well. So, you know, the, that, that was the first person that came to my mind. But I, I, I'd have to think of, you know, somebody for, for the younger. There's There's a couple of great uh young actors like boo boo stewart i know is 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 becoming popular and well i heard there was a a guy in a film that i saw earlier this year it was a horror film by jeff barnaby and i i forget his name let's see if i can find him but is his um, last name kustashin i'm looking at that guy he actually looks like i did when i was young i forget what his mom's name she's pretty famous too yeah we're we're, for i'm thinking about him another one yeah, or Ricardo Hoyas, who's actually related to me oh, through really? my dad's side. Do you know who that is? Yeah, he was on. He played uh, Zig on Degrassi. Yeah, and he was in Transformers. Yes, that's, that's right. actually my cousin, right? And so, okay. but he's he's half uh, Aztec or something. He's from the states, right? Okay, uh, that's where he lives. But yeah, we're looking at him too, or I am. I think he would do a good job, and he's of the level that we're looking for. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of great um, indigenous talent out there. So I'm, I'm sure you will find somebody 
just right uh, to 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 play you, and I'm I'm, I'm sure you will have uh, at least some say in in in, in who uh, in in who they cast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. I don't well, know if it'd be Adam Beach though. I think yeah. I don't look like I don't. Personally, I don't. I yeah. We'll see. We'll see. He's what he's uh he's Salto, I believe. So is he? Oh, okay. Yeah, from uh, I think he's a Salto from Manitoba. Yeah. Um, by my count, yeah, uh, yeah, he's from Asher, Manitoba. Anyway. Yeah. Cool. Um, but yeah, don't I, I don't know. I don't. Maybe he maybe he's just the first person that that came to my mind just because you know I I I'm sort of familiar with his work. But anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the the book is from the ashes. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. It's it's a very powerful story, um, and I hope listeners will will get out there and and, and read it, and, and more people can become familiar with you and and, and your work and and your story. Um, Jesse Thistle, thanks so thank much you. for your time this afternoon, man. Thank you. What's your name, dude? Oh, my name's Dan. Sorry. <laughs> nice to meet you, Dan. Thank you nice for having you. me on your show. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Once again, that was my conversation with Jesse Thistle. His memoir, From the Ashes, My Story of Being Métis Homeless and Finding My Way, is now out in paperback. That does it. For me today, my thanks to Jesse Thistle for coming on the show. Monday, I'm super, super, super excited. We have renowned character actor Richard Reilly on the show. It's a long one. It's a good one. I may have fanned out a little bit, but you don't want to miss it. So stay tuned. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. Artists like to have a lot of sex. <laughs> <laughs>